What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, my guest is Todd Rose. All right. He wrote this amazing, amazing, amazing book called Collective Illusions. And it's honestly one of my favorite books so far in 2022. But I, I almost guarantee it'll be in my top 10, maybe top five favorite books by the end of this year. All right. And and funny enough, I actually recorded this a while ago, right after I recorded with uh, the other Todd about his book. It was weird. I had like two Todds in one week. But anyways, anyways, that's just a silly, fun fact for you. But yeah, today uh, I talked to Todd Rose about his book, Collective Illusions. Like, check it out. Like, we're going to be talking about these these kind of social lies, right? Like, I have been absolutely fascinated with human behavior Probably for, for most of my life, but when I got canceled in 2019, like just something set me off on this journey to read as many books as I can to just understand human nature. Well, anyways, Todd takes this unique angle uh, when it comes to like kind of group psychology, crowd psychology. And it's really interesting because, you know, uh, as many of you know, I'm also fascinated with like self-deception. But there are there are social lies. There are lies that we believe in groups, right, where we as you know liberals or as conservatives, we believe something together and then we believe things about the other side. But there are also these these lies that we believe about ourselves. Right. And this is one of the reasons why I'm like really big into mental health and things like cognitive behavioral therapy, because there's so many things that are just not rooted in facts but todd is actually part of a think tank where they're actually you know trying to work on government policies because for example something we discuss in this episode is part of what he talks about in his book is that collectively you know a lot of us think that if we were to just give money if we were to give money to uh uh, people who are struggling, poor people, homeless people, whoever it is, right? We think that they're, they're going to make bad decisions, right? But if you were to give me money, I'm going to make great decisions, right? There's this attribution bias that we all have. And there's so many of these things. And what's tragic is it is actually affecting, you know, how we vote, how we run our societies and all these so Todd's mission is to kind of wake us up to these lies that we're telling ourselves in, in groups and as individuals that are, are, you know, holding us back from living in a better world. And it's such, such an important thing, right? Like, even if you're not into politics or whatever, there, there's things that we just believe within our friend groups and all these other things because we conform and we don't challenge things and we don't look at evidence. We don't look at facts. So I, I could just go on and on forever. This is such, such an important book. And as you'll hear uh, when we kick this discussion off, I can relate to Todd a lot. He came from, you know, a, a background where there was a lot of, you know, struggle. Uh, he had to go on food stamps. Then he ended up being like uh, an Ivy League, like professor and stuff like that. So book aside, he has a very inspiring story as well. But he's a really cool guy. I, I really appreciate the work he's doing. So head down to the description, make sure that you're following Todd and his organization. But most importantly, grab a copy of this 
book. Like, I, I truly believe that, you know, one of our highest priorities should be tr seeking truth. And it's easy, like living an easy life. is just like keep like going along and just like living in these, you know, collective illusions, as Todd Rose calls them. But like, we have to seek truth so we can like help out ourselves as well as each other. You know what I mean? So yeah, make sure you grab a copy of this book. And before we get started, couple things as usual make sure you're following me over on instagram and twitter if you're not yet uh, i love chatting with all of you and that way you don't miss any upcoming episodes and the upcoming projects i keep getting ideas and i i'm trying to sit down and write a book as many of you know i started a new job so my time management's all over the place but anyways make sure you're following me on instagram and twitter so you don't miss anything all right then last thing if you're new to the podcast make sure you're following the podcast and subscribe if you're not new Make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. I'd really appreciate it. It helps out a ton. All right, but anyways, I've chatted enough. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Todd Rose about his new book, Collective Illusions. Hello, Todd. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So today we're talking about your new book, Collective Illusions. And you, I, I think, I think you saw on Twitter, like I was just rolling through the bookstore and I happened to see your book. I'm like, what's this book? And I need it. And I binged it. So for everybody who's unfamiliar with you and your work, can you give us a little bit of your background and then what inspired writing this thing? Yeah. Um, so let's see, the short version of it is I am right now I, I run a think tank called Populous. But before that, I was a professor at Harvard uh, where I ran the mind, brain and education program. And uh, before that, I <laughs> had a, a fun background where I actually had a high school dropout with a 0 0.9 GPA. So that might be a different uh, conversation. But, um, <laughs> you know, so uh, but, you know, most of my work has focused on understanding individuals and both, you know, as human beings, but also as social creatures. And a lot of the work at Populist now has been looking at what we call private opinion rather than just what people will mm -hmm. say out loud, because we think those aren't always the same thing. And um, one of the things we kept coming across over the last four or five years is just how, how often we're just wrong about the majority in this country. I mean, it's kind mm -hmm. of shocking. Like when we first discovered that, I thought we we made a mistake, and so we reran data, we did stuff. But it just at this point, we are just spectacularly wrong about each other in ways that are so harmful. And so, for me, I felt like, you know, given all the polarization, the lack of trust, things like this that are that are harming our our society, I felt like we all believe that it's true and we have plenty of data that suggests it's actually not true, that it's this collective illusion. And so I feel like why not write a, a book um, for the public to try to introduce mm -hmm. this concept? Because the idea of collective illusions like has, has been around for about a hundred years in research uh, under various names, but the public doesn't really know about it. Um, and so I, I decided during the pandemic to write the book. <laughs> and so here we are. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, and, and yeah, there's so much, uh, 
that I connected with. And, and yeah, we'll, we'll start by kind of touching on your background a little bit, because you, you discuss it a bit towards the end of the book. And that's when I really connected because I have, uh, you know, not the exact story, obviously, but similar, like I, I went to college after high school for like a semester dropped out and now like, and then I became a drug addict and alcoholic for a decade. And now I just, I read and try to learn everything I can, but I've been really fascinated with uh, just how we think and behave in groups, uh, based on my own experience, when I had the internet coming after me in 2019, I'm like, what's happening? Why are people acting like this? And I got really into it. And I've read a lot of books on the topic and yours takes these different angles that I, I really appreciated and enjoyed. But, um, let's start out with, uh, kind of your backstory and how these, these illusions and these beliefs that we have, uh, you had to kind of like overcome them. I think a good example we could start with is, uh, I could really relate when you talked about uh, going on food stamps, right? And and you had a talk, I believe with your dad. I had that same thing when my son was born. I was unemployed, I, uh, it was 2008. So the, everything was going to hell. My uh, car dealership that I was working at shut down when he was like two months old. And I was like, no, I'm not taking any government assistance. Those are handouts. You know, and all that stuff. So let's start out with how, how did you realize that these kind of collective illusions were affecting you and holding you back a little bit? Yeah. Look, you know, for me, you know, look from a very early age, <laughs> the system just didn't work very well for me. And I, you know, I, I played a role in that, but, um, you know, just school didn't work. Uh, like I said, dropped out with a 0 0.9 GPA. My girlfriend at the time found out she was pregnant. Um, mm -hmm. she's still my wife today. So that, that, that has a reasonably happy ending there. But like, um, the, you know, we had two kids by the time we were t like 20, 21. Um, I had a string of minimum wage jobs, the kind of jobs you get, you know, when you don't have a high school diploma mm -hmm. and we just couldn't make ends meet. And like you, I just. The idea of taking a handout just felt like, like part of it was just pride too, but like, you know, and, and realizing that you just, you, you had to do right by your kids and I needed to take care of my family. And so mm -hmm. my dad, you know, he pulled me aside and he said, look, you're thinking about it wrong, right? Like, cause you think about his government and he's like, these are your fellow citizens, your, your neighbors who are willing to give up some of their tax money, right? Their own hard-earned money to invest in you, to give you a chance to better your life. And he said, as long as you see it that way, then, and you see it as a, you have an obligation to make that investment pay off, mm. then there's no shame in that. And, and I took that with me and, and, um, and tried to do right by that. But what was so fascinating just overall, you know, at the time, not having much self self-esteem, like try, you know, whatever choices you're making aren't working out very well. Yeah. Um, and so you end up thinking, well, it's almost like the old Seinfeld thing, like, like opposite George, right? George says like, if everything choice I make is wrong, what am I just do the opposite of it? Right. But like, instead I was like, maybe I was so susceptible to like the group norms and what I thought other people didn't. So I just was almost like a chameleon, like I'll be like whatever group I'm around. And, mm -hmm. and the truth is, is, is anyone who's tried that knows it doesn't really lead you anywhere fulfilling. And, mm -hmm. um, so for me, I had to dig myself out of that hole and learn how to be who I really was and, and think for myself. Um, and, and obviously that worked out pretty well, but what, what's so interesting, just to circle back the, this sort of illusion, one of the biggest illusions we've ever found is with respect to trusting other people. Mm -hmm. Um, the vast majority of Americans across all demographics 
privately believe that they themselves are very trustworthy. And not only that, they, they really care about being viewed as trustworthy. And yet these same people believe they're a minority in the country. <laughs> they wow. believe that most everybody else is both is not trustworthy and doesn't even care about being trustworthy. Um, so it's pretty interesting. That gets even into sharper focus when we talk about people facing poverty, mm-hmm. which is like actually people facing poverty believe that they can make good choices too. They're just, it's circumstances. But uh, most people don't think that about people facing poverty. So, so we end up with elaborate, government programs that control the kind of choices you can make rather than trusting people with things like cash transfers. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Like, uh, cause I read a lot of books on like decision-making and just, uh, you know, trying to understand all the different cognitive traps we get into. And one of them, like that you're touching on is, is that attribution error, right? Like when we do something like, oh, it's morally justified. Like, like when I'm speeding down the freeway, it's because I'm yeah. late, something important is happening. I don't always drive like this, but if somebody else does it, we don't afford them that same kind of like leeway, right? They're just a, a jerk. You know and what I mean? Yeah, what's so fascinating is if you think about it, so it, with if a collective illusion is simply a social lie, right? The circumstances where most people in a group go along with an idea that they don't agree with just because they incorrectly believe most everybody else uh, agrees with it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's crazy that that can even happen, but it happens so often. This attribution error, right, is applied to social pressure. So we know from research that People know, I know that I am susceptible to social pressure, right? Mm-hmm. I know that I don't want to be embarrassed, that I want to be with my group, but we completely discount that pressure on other people. And so, like, like I said, if I'm self-silencing or if I'm even lying about what I think to belong, I know that, and I make all the excuses in the world, like, well, here's a reason why I had to do that. But you tell me the same thing. And I, I assume you're telling me what you really think. I can't, mm. I don't, I don't attribute the same type of pressure to you. And so it's so easy for us to misread group consensus because of those kind of errors. Yeah. So uh, let me let me actually get your thoughts on this. Like I was just recently reading a book on uh, my side bias, and it presented something that I hadn't even thought of before. Because we typically see people as acting irrational, like when we're talking about polarization, right? Like like we're like, this is completely irrational. But when we think about evolutionary psychology and how we evolved to be in groups and go along with the group, like back in the day, it was advantageous to do what the group said, or they might kick you out and then you're on your own. So we see people, for example, with anti-vax or people uh, going along with the, uh, the big lie of the election fraud and everything. We're like, you're being irrational, here's the evidence. But anyways, this book was arguing that might actually be the most rational thing in their scenario because they're going along with their group and to do something against their group would be irrational, right? So what are your thoughts on that and how we can kind of use that to get past these collective illusions and maybe have a little bit more empathy towards others? Yeah, I think that's the key right there, right? The empathy, because um, it's funny that I kind of laid this out in the book that we are hardwired to conform it. and, And there's a reason for that, right? Like without without our social nature, like we only, all we get to do is learn everything the hard way, right? Instead yeah. of being able to internalize like everything from observational learning of other individuals to mm-hmm. cultural norms, which are just insights from previous generations that, that make life a lot easier when they're, when they're right. And so if we are not like, like, like in the book, I talk about like, we're, we have dedicated brain areas that do nothing but process social information. 
And when we are told, like uh, you put someone in a scanner and you, you give them a task, even something as subjective as who you think is good looking. And if, if you give a score and I tell you that your score is consistent with the group, you get a reward response, a mm. dopamine reward response, same kind of response that hard drugs elicit, which makes yeah. them addictive, right? And conversely, if I tell you that your view is, is against your group, it triggers an error signal, which is this electrical jolt that spreads across the brain, that short circuits attention, everything else, all meant to tell you something is wrong, you need to correct your behavior, right? So evolutionarily, there's a really good reason for that. We are not a, a lone wolf species, we're a pack species. And you know, the old saying, better to be wrong together than right alone, right? <laughs> like, yeah. so, so, you know, a lot of times those of us that already feel like we have belonging and we belong mm -hmm. to a lot of different groups and we feel secure in that, don't appreciate both what it feels like to be ostracized from groups, right? And how painful that really is. And when you only have like one group that matters to you, the kind of cult-like power that that group really has over you. And so mm -hmm. to your point, it's like, we look at it and go, man, look at the facts. How could you make this decision? And when you see, when you sit back and see us as human beings through evolution as deeply social creatures, how many people are willing to sacrifice belonging to the group that matters most to them just to be right empirically? It's, mm -hmm. we'd like to think we all would do that, but it's very difficult. And I think we should yeah. have a little compassion and a little empathy for for folks that are in that position. Yeah, yeah, it's it's helped me out a lot over the years as I started trying to understand, you know, some of these, uh, you know, polarization issues. And because we all sit back and we're just like, how can you think that way? How can you believe that way? But like, I was born in California, grew up in Southern California. Now I, I've been living in Las Vegas for most of my life. And I've lived in a very, like in very liberal areas, right? When I just even take a minute to be like, what would it be like if I grew up in the Bible Belt, right? And went to church constantly. And I grew up here in Las Vegas with a bunch of Mormons, my best friend and his family, they're Mormon too, and you're from Utah, you know, and all that. So I'm like, like I, I, I could see that difference and I empathize because I'm like, you know, uh, one of my best friends, his brother came out as gay later on and he held that in for a long time just because of, you know, the norms within the church and all that. And fortunately, you know, it all worked out and, you know, the family accepted him and all that. But I don't think we, fully take that into consideration. So I guess the question is too, uh, you know, you have a lot of solutions and, you know, this kind of awareness that we need to bring that you talk about in the book, but when we talk about these big issues, like believing like conspiracies around vaccines or like, uh, you know, the most, the, the most tragic thing that happened was January 6th of last year, where being a part of that group led to people storming the Capitol, right? So how do we prevent, you know, things that are causing real world harm because of these collective illusions? You know what I mean? Like, what's that process yeah. look like? Because it seems like it's slower than we want it to be, but For sure. what's that well, look we're just like? not, we're not, the, the problem, um, the problem is that like our brains were not prepared for the kind of social media environments that we live oh, in yeah. now, right? Like we can talk about sort of why, why these illusions are so widespread today compared to earlier in history. Um, and social media is a big part of that, but mm -hmm. like you take something to me, I look at something like January 6th and I think it is exactly the example of just because something is an illusion doesn't mean it's not real in its consequences. Right. Yeah. So if I believe it's true, it's true in its consequences. And so, you know, if, if I really thought that the election was truly rigged, like actually mm -hmm. like, 
like with all the kind of crazy like stuff that was out, if that were 100% true, then minus the violence, you could argue this is what you should be doing if yeah. you if cared for for the future of the country, right? So mm-hmm. the, the problem is, and and like I can tell you from firsthand experience, the number of elected Republican officials that I know personally who said for sure Trump lost fair and square for sure, right? Yeah, but they believe that their constituents believe the lie, mm-hmm. and so they 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 think that they're playing this careful game of I still want to get elected again. Um, I don't want to go against my constituents. A lot of them don't don't promote the lie. They just say nothing, right? Yeah. Thinking that what am I harming? But if you understand the concept of collective illusion, elected officials, leaders, powerful people have outsized influence in terms of what we think the majority believes, right? Mm-hmm. So it's one thing for the loser of an election to claim that they're not really a loser. But when everybody else is like saying nothing, it gives the impression that something really went wrong. And so like, to me, like the best way to deal with some of that stuff is for us to understand this concept, understand that like there are massive consequences for society when we stay silent on things we know are not true, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't, we're not honest about what we believe. And those of us that have some power and are in a position of power need to take that even more serious. And what's interesting with politicians, just one last thing on that is that research has shown they are more susceptible to collective illusions than any other group because <laughs> yeah. they, they rightly are about trying to understand their constituents, right? If they're doing their job, they should be caring. So they're hypersensitive to that, which means they are hypersensitive to misreading the group too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's so many things like that just brought up 50 million questions in my head. So let's, let's start with this, right? So uh, you talked about how social media has kind of exacerbated some of these things and something I've noticed both on the left and the right. Right. So, you know, I, I lean left and everything, but you know, I, I'm not a fan of all the culture wars and everything like that, but something I've noticed on both sides of this is that uh, the the minority voices get the loudest, right? So it almost creates this illusion that the masses are fighting for this. So on the left, you have these politicians and stuff who are promoting these very like, you know, social justice things that go like a little bit too far. And it almost seems like they feel like that's what the majority mm-hmm. is thinking, but they're not. So can you kind of break down like how, how social media and, you know, you, you discuss like the Matthew effect too in the book, which is something I try to teach people about all the time, how it gets bigger and bigger. And like, for example, somebody with a loud voice on social media, they start getting louder and louder as they get more followers and followers, even though there's like a huge amount of silent people who just aren't speaking up. So how, how, how do we acknowledge and work on that? This is great. So let's, let's step back to get to the social media part. Let's, so we think about how collective illusions happen, right? So you think it would require biased media, sort of bad actors, and that does happen sometimes, but really it's how our brains are wired, right? So we said earlier, we have this conformity bias. We all do. It's just part of our nature. Um, some of us more intensely than others, but we all have it. Um, problem is for conformity to work, you actually have to know what the group thinks. <laughs> like, otherwise, mm-hmm. what are you conforming to, right? Yeah. Here's the rub. For as much as our brains crave conformity, our brains are spectacularly bad at estimating group consensus because they use it, your brain uses a shortcut. It assumes the loudest voices repeated the most are the majority. Mm. Now, throughout evolution, you're in like 
small groups of, you know, 100, 150, that might be a good shortcut, right? Because yeah. you know everybody and like, it's never foolproof, but like it might, it obviously worked well enough to be sort of hardwired into us. Yeah. But, but now we live in a society where, okay, on social media, for example, you have on Twitter, 80% of all content being created by 10% of the users. And according to Pew Research, that 10% are not remotely representative of the rest of the country, right? They tend to be more extreme on almost every social issue. But there you can see the problem. If, if only 10% of people hold a view, but you think it's 80%, then your brain will assume it's the majority and either you will conform because you want to be with the group or if you don't want to go, you know, conform, well, am I not going to go against the group? So I'll just say nothing. I'll self-silence. Try to just... Mm -hmm. But if enough of us do that, right, enough of us self-silence, then the fringe view is the only view anybody hears and the results of collective illusion. And that's like exactly what's going on in the country today. Because we know, for example, from our own research of populists and others like Cato, that two-thirds of Americans of all political persuasions admit to self-silencing right now. Two-thirds. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I, I forgot what book I was I was reading, but it was it was kind of discussing this, and you know the solution it gave was like, yeah, if you're somewhere in the middle, like you need to start speaking up more because, like you said, the people on the fringes are getting the loudest. Then that shortcut makes us think that you know this is the uh, the, the masses saying this when it's really a small percentage. So if you get the more moderate views speaking up, then that becomes a louder voice, and we can hopefully bring people yeah. a little bit together. And and think about it, if you knew. So for example, in our own research, we, we found of the two thirds of Americans who are self-silencing, like cancel culture, the threat of economic or social exclusion or, or, or repercussions is actually a pretty small percentage in terms of why people say they're, they're self-silencing. The overwhelming majority say they're doing it out of decency. They don't wanna hurt people's feelings. They don't wanna cause conflict. And they believe that people are just too sensitive these days, right? Mm -hmm. And so, they, so, but if you knew about collective illusions and you knew that your self-silencing was effectively doubling the voice of the of the group that you don't agree with, right? Yeah. Then, then you realize that it's not just for your own good that you are honest about your opinion, but it might be the most important thing you could do for for us, for the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. So, so this this kind of goes uh, with what we're talking about because of the the way our brain creates this shortcut. But I am somebody who is a huge, huge skeptic of polls and maybe you can help with that because i'm sure <laughs> you and your team looks at a lot of polls and everything like that but it almost seems like we're using that as a shortcut as well because when i look at polling data i always go to like what's the sample size how many people did you talk to right and the other thing i always think of is i'm 36 years old and never once in my entire life have i ever participated in a poll i never got a call i never <laughs> if somebody tried to stop me i avoid them you know what i mean so i'm like yeah. how many people are like me so how how representative is this but anyways uh when we look at polling data how how well can we kind of really see what the consensus is and what do you what do you guys do when you're looking at data like that no that's exactly right look um i mean there's some really brilliant people in 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 polling like nate silver and some of who, who you mm -hmm. know and there are real issues around sampling because it is hard these days especially most people don't have landlines um and yeah. a lot of it just amounts to convenience sampling right which is never going to give you what you really need to understand but beyond that, like the stuff we do at Populous is what we call private opinion research. So there's a handful of distortions, the ways in which public opinion does not represent 
private opinion. And so we think we have a handful of methods that, you know, we didn't invent, but um, smarter people did, <laughs> but um, that we, they get around things like social pressure, uh, complex trade-offs, or even like what we call like leaky abstractions. Like you ask someone, are you pro-life or pro-choice? And they tell you, and then you give them the concrete scenarios that should matter. And their behavior looks nothing like their sentiment. Right. Yeah. And it's just like, so we have those methods, but even then, like, I, like we, we feel like we're, those methods are a lot more accurate in terms of predicting behavior. But I actually think that this idea of polling, it's really often more about manufacturing consent than it is revealing mm. preference. Right. And, and one of my biggest pet peeves to, to your point, to you looking at sample size and, and, and how that sample is collected, look at the number of times we force people. We don't give the option of no opinion. And so it's like, it, you'll, you'll, you'll be shocked. And it's like mm -hmm. media companies are notorious for this because they want the thing that sells and having someone say, I don't really have an opinion. It does not sell. Um, yeah. But if they force you into yes or no, it makes it look like there's an intensity of interest in one side mm. when in fact, most people are just kind of in the middle and dominant opinion. But I, I just think like where we have to get to as a people now is to recognize that because of our technologies, which have a lot of upside, you can no longer trust your brain's judgment about what the group consensus is, even though your brain will convince you it's true. Like you just have to get past that and realize you can't allow that to determine your own behavior or how you treat other people. Yeah. So something I wanted to circle back to is we were talking about politicians and, you know, their, their duty is to their constituents and all that. Right. So here's where I get, where, where like, I get a little confused. I don't know what the solution is. So, uh, speaking of polls, when we look at certain things, right? Like I'm like lefty progressive, like, yeah, Medicare for all and everything. And, you know, I see people citing polls, like, Hey, a majority of people want to legalize marijuana have free healthcare, all these other things, right? But then you see politicians, senators from that area. For example, off the top of my head, I see people going after Joe Manchin and saying, you're not doing what your constituents want, or even Kirsten Cinema and all that stuff, right? But when they're vocalizing, they're saying, no, I am doing, like, you don't understand yeah. West Virginia Democrats, you don't understand Arizona. So anyways, so we have polling over here, then we also have the availability heuristic, right? So if Joe Manchin goes out to West Virginia and he talks to X amount of people, he's going to believe that those are the majority. He's like, well, everybody I talk to, and he's not thinking of his own sampling bias and who he's talking to. So anyways, there's so many factors that maybe I overthink or overcomplicate things, but, but we're, no, this we're, is, yeah. yeah. You're, you're, no, you're 100% right, right? So we're all susceptible to this. And so one of the things that is, is funny is like um, the mistake that so good, like the politicians that I know and that, that, that talk to us about like giving them private opinion data to say, look, you've got, I know you, you're really sensitive to people who call in and, and, and email your office and it can feel like everybody, all of your constituents care about this. When in fact, just like if you're getting attacked on Twitter, it can feel like it's everybody and it's like a couple hundred people, right? Like, like yeah. it just feels like it's everybody and your brain is saying, uh-oh, my views are out of step with the majority. I, I need to do something. Um, what we can do is show them like, look, for example, like if you ask people something in isolation, like, do you want, you know, like Medicare for all? Maybe get an answer, right? But the truth is, is like, what you really want to know is what are they willing to sacrifice for it? Because there's no such thing as a free lunch mm, and there's limited resources. Yeah. And 
you know, you saw this time and time again, the last election, um, the mistake people made. One of the areas we know for sure that the American public are privately divided on is immigration. That is an area where it's not an illusion. We are just really divided by our politics there. Um, And what was interesting is like Democrats on average have a certain view of that. And it's very different than Republicans. What people missed on the left is that when you put it into a trade-off scenario, like immigration was like the fifth most important thing. Give or take, I'll I'll be off by a couple of rank orders there. Mm -hmm. It was number one for Republicans. So it's like, yes, you have different views. One of you will sacrifice everything else to get their thing. The other group will trade off (laughs) immigration (laughs) for four other things, right? So it's like, there's, if you really want to understand people, you can't understand just what they'll say out loud. You got to understand the trade-offs they're willing to make, right? And and the, the extent to which social pressure is affecting what they'll say out loud. Mm. So do you say, because you kind of, you're basically, uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, when we're talking about some of the issues with polling, kind of gives you like a black and white mm-hmm. choice. Like, it, it, are you pro-life or uh, pro-choice, right? And a lot of things, like what I've realized is humans are complex. Most uh, most issues are very nuanced and people have very nuanced, uh, you know, views on it. So like, do you think polling would be better if it really honed in on one topic and then like got that information of trade-offs, better views, like could polling be better by doing yeah. it? So look, I'm biased because this is part of what we do at Populous, but you can see on our website, like we, we, we apply this private opinion methodology and, and it, like to build uh, indices of everything from the kind of lives people want to live to the their priorities for the country. Like, where do you want to go as Americans to mm. what they want out of things like education, healthcare? Um, and we we don't have a, a dog in the fight in the sense that what we believe is that you need to understand the public's honest to goodness trade off values and priorities if we're going to build institutions that can live up to those, right? Mm-hmm. And so, to me, it's like you go back to like the. It's, it's funny, like the, the pro-life, pro-choice thing. It's a perfect example of like, anytime you see a binary, right? Th- this is for the audience. Like if you want to know where there's likely to be a collective illusion, when something has been forced into an AB decision, right? Like yeah. it's, it's because that is almost never the way it really is. But when you're forced into you're with me or you're against me, that, that becomes a, a great trap for having to like, feel like I'm, I, I'm not sure I believe all of this, but I think my group does. So now I have to be on that side. But what's interesting with the pro-life, pro-choice is when you ask people the sentiment, because their identities are tied to that abstraction, right? Mm-hmm. And then you give them the 10 behaviors that, that, that matter with respect to abortion. What's unbelievable is how much variation there is under any side, right? And what I find the, the funniest is we can easily find plenty of people who will say, I am pro-life and they mean it. And they, another person says, I'm pro-choice and they mean it and they hate each other, right? They see the other side as like yeah. immoral and yet they have the exact same concrete pattern of behaviors, right? Yeah, it, It's like, they are literally the same person and yet they see each other as enemies because of the abstract sentiment that, they, that they've found themselves to. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, that's honestly one of the reasons I not only just read uh, a diverse range of views from the left, from the right, you know, all these different opinions. And I, I invite people on the podcast with somebody sometimes gets me into trouble, but I do find that, you know, I agree with a lot of like, I've had, you know, people with, you know, who are 
uh, on the other side, right? And I find how much we actually agree on, you know? And that's always interesting to me is why I believe more people should be talking. And I love organizations like Braver Angels where they bring people together to, to chat about these things. Well, and and what I would say is, look, I, I believe Populous has more private opinion data on the American public than just about anybody. And what I can tell you is, we have so much in common in private. It is unbelievable. But these yeah. illusions have convinced us that we don't. And so mm -hmm. in practice, we don't, right? We don't behave that way. So we should be having conversations anyway, even when we privately really do disagree, right? Because you never know, like, I think I'm right on everything, but history suggests that's not true, <laughs> right? Yeah. So the only way I'm going to expand my horizons and, and free myself of my own errors and biases is through conversation with people who are different than I am, right? Mm -hmm. So it's true even when we privately disagree, we should be having conversations. But collective illusions ups that ante even more, right? To realize that in fact, we have led ourselves to a place where we believe we are so divided and so polarized, but it's not actually true in private. Mm -hmm. And the only way out of that illusion is the conversations, right? And so yeah. what's interesting is, starting with a little bit of humility and empathy and saying, I'm just really trying to understand where you're coming from. You wouldn't believe the number of people already since the book came out who've said like, it's changed how I engage with my parents or my family. Mm -hmm. I thought that they believed X. It turns out they don't <laughs> like, so it's just have the conversations, right? Yeah. You'll be, you'll be shocked at how much common ground there really is, right? There are plenty of things we are divided on. We are never going to solve those if we can't build the trust off of the things we actually do agree on. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, one of the things I, I, I was dying to chat with you about, cause I, I heard about this a long time ago and you touched on it in the book. I'm like, I'm going to talk to Todd about this. So I'm going to, I'm going to explain kind of what I learned from this and then I'm going to have you break it down, but it's the organ donation thing. Mm -hmm. All right. When I, when I learned about that originally, I was like, this is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life, but to give everybody kind of a preface of what I've learned, but like, for example, uh, you know, we, we pass up things that other people pass up on. I've noticed I once learning about this thing, I've noticed it like at the, at the grocery store, right? There's like a cart, a shopping cart sitting by itself and everybody keeps grabbing from the thing. So you, you automatically think there must be something wrong with this shopping cart since nobody's touching it. They'll go grab it perfectly fine. Right. But anyways, anyways, I kind of gave like a little teaser, but can you break down yeah. what this or organ donation thing is and why you, why it's happening? Yeah. So it, it's part of, in, in the book, I tried to lay out um, three ways that we fall into these conformity traps that are likely to be illusions anyway. Right. And we end up mm -hmm. being complicit in those illusions without realizing it. And one of them is just this copycat kind of trap where <laughs> we basically as social creatures, right? We kind of think like, you see a number of people doing something and you're like, huh, that's not the choice I would make. But you think, man, the wisdom of the crowd, right? This many people can't be wrong, right? Yeah. Which by the way, there is wisdom of the crowd. If and only if every individual has made an independent decision. In that, oh. in that case, the aggregate information is usually pretty good. The problem is we're all social creatures, right? So there's no such thing as a purely independent decision, right? So what we're doing is looking around going, Wait, why did they make that choice? Um, you know, we do this all the time. Fads happen like this all the time. Like a hot new restaurant. We're all going there. Why are we going there? Because everyone's going there, right? Um, and in, in some of it's fun and, and not that life altering, but the kidney transplant list is like a crazy example of this where lives are lost, where you know there's so many more people that need kidneys 
than there are kidneys available. I mean, it is not even close, right? Mm -hmm. And I was shocked. And the reason I included it in there is I was blown away by the fact that we actually discard a very high percentage of healthy kidneys. If I remember right, it's like 20, 25% of kidneys are just thrown away. And, and here's the problem. It's the way that the kidney list has been structured in the past, right? Yeah. Now we've figured out a remedy to this, which I used for the book is I think a good example is that basically let's say you're number one on the list and I'm number 20, right? Yeah. Well, as number one, first of all, a kidney, when it comes available, you only have about 48 hours before it's no good. So you yeah. got to move fast. And what happens is like you're number one on the list. You'll get the information if it's a match, right? Um, and so will your doctor. And you have a limited amount of time to say, yes, I'll take it. No, I'm going to pass, right? First of all, if you're number one on the list, you can afford to be picky, right? <laughs> like, Because yeah. you're going to get another bite of that apple, right? Um, yeah. But what happens is the way, like basically what they weren't allowing people to do was say why they said no to the kidney. And so all I would get, if I was number two, I just know that you passed on it. And I'm like, huh. And I'm looking at it going, seems pretty good. Why did, why did number one pass? Now you can imagine as number two, I might be okay with, well, there must've been a reason, but you get to like number 10 and you're like, why would nine other people pass up this kidney? Right. And it yeah. turns out like you could just be out of town. You could just not be able to get there in time. Right. There's a whole bunch of reasons. So, so what we find is once it starts to fall, the kidney will just keep falling. And by like people who should be like, wait a minute, I, I'm like on death's door and I'm number 50 on the list will still pass up a kidney that was actually really good. Um, and the, the, the answer was, and it, and it was pretty great, is to allow people to say why it is they said no. Yeah, It, it seems so simple. But if we translate that to everyday life, if you want to know whether you are about to just blindly copy because you think it's the wisdom of the crowd versus is this just everybody copying like one person from the beginning? Yeah. Just ask the person why they're doing what they're doing. Ask them why. They're like, this is the greatest restaurant ever. Why? What do you like about it? And if they can't give you a good answer, you know this is just a cascade of copying and this yeah. is an illusion. And you should just be free to uh, ignore that social information. Yeah, I, I, I had learned a long time ago just asking why or how do you know what you know, like just some basic epistemology, like how do you know, like how do you know this is the best or how do you know that kidney is bad, yeah. right? And and what's interesting too is by saying like why you pass on the kidney, I can almost imagine people realizing how silly they were and they wouldn't honestly say, I pass on it because that guy passed on it. So there's some weird thing, but... But, they, but what's funny is they'll, they'll tend to be like, what you'll see in general, like, is they'll be like, like in, in, why did you choose this restaurant? Oh, cause it's the best. Like, how do you know it's like, oh, it's just the best. I know it's the best. I mean, everybody knows it's the best. Like they can, they really can't give you right. Yeah. Like, I agree. And what's funny is, is like, it's people that are using private knowledge to make that decision will give you a pretty nuanced contextualized, like. Why is this restaurant the best? It's got great risotto. Oh my goodness. You've got to try this. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, it's not very hard to sniff this out, but it's like, we fall for these, these copycat traps all the time. Yeah. No, uh, I, I think, you know, when you, when you just ask these simple questions, like when, for example, just why people hold certain views and opinions, the amount of people that I've asked, like, okay, well, why do you believe that? Or, Hey, do you have any data or something? And they'll send me 
uh, a video clip or an article. I'm like, wait a second. So you didn't come to this conclusion. Right. You're giving me someone else's like, I, I want you to explain why you believe it. Like that has happened so many times. For example, when I, uh, when I went through having the internet coming after me in 2019, like you said, it felt like everybody, but it was, it was tens of thousands of people, but it wasn't millions. Right. Yeah. So it could have been bigger, but anyways, uh, I would see people saying like, Hey, well, why is everybody mad at that guy, Chris? And they would just link to some other video. And I'm sitting there like that video is filled with misinformation. So you can't just link that as a source. But, but before I forget, I want to ask you this because maybe, you know, the answer to this, whenever I hear this kidney story, why, like, there's gotta be a reason, but why the hell would they even say how many people passed up on a kidney? Why wouldn't they just say you're up? Like, it's just part of like the medical. Well, you know, because you just know, right? So, for example, you know where you are on the list. So, uh, if the kidney gets to me and I'm number 30, I know for sure 29 people pass on it. That's all. Got it. Right? And, by the way, the, it's funny, this copying, like, it works the other way, too. So, like, you know, you think about, like, with books, like, since this is what I'm talking about, like, I was really pleasantly surprised. Like, now, like, Collective Illusions is, like, number six on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list now, right? Yeah. There'll be a tons of people who are, like, this must be a good book. right? (laughs) Sometimes it works in my favor. And I think, you know, but I still say, listen, don't trust bestseller list. Just make a decision for yourself. Listen to people you trust. And, 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 but it's just funny because it's the same thing. It's like, I don't know if it's on the bestseller list. It must be a good book. So here we go. Yeah. This is something I, uh, like I said, I'm like obsessed with the Matthew effect since I learned about it. And like, I try to educate people about it a ton because you see that with books, you see that with, you know, TV shows, movies, you see that with articles. But, uh, for example, if I'm talking about podcasts and so we're, what we're on, you'll see, uh, you know, the same people going on the biggest podcasts, right? And you assume that this person uh, is an expert or a genius or whatever, just because they're there, but they keep getting recommended for other top tier podcasts because they're, you know, and, and what's big, it just keeps getting bigger. But what I try to explain to people too is, you don't even know what voices aren't being heard. You don't know what books aren't being learned about. So like, I'll pick up just random books and read it. And some of the best books I've read are from no name. Like these people don't even have a social media presence. I'm like, who are you? How do I find you? So uh, when you understand these kind of collective illusions and how people just, you know, go after these things, like, like, by the way, don't get me wrong. Your book deserves to be on the bestseller list because it was phenomenal, but it's, it's interesting. So how do you, how do you personally protect yourself from falling into these traps? You have like a checklist, you step back and ask yourself if you're, like, oh, am I just going to this restaurant because everybody said it was good? Or because you you discuss in the book how the brain can actually change the perception of what something's like. So, oh, it's so crazy. That's, it changes it, it, your reality. It, it, it That's what's so shocking is just the extent to which conformity doesn't just, it's not just twisting us into behaviors we wouldn't otherwise do. It will literally change what you see. It will like, the group yeah. has a lot of effect on us as individuals. But the, for me, it's like, like I said, I, I personally, like, nobody likes to be wrong. Nobody likes to, you know, it would be perfect if you had hundred percent knowledge of everything, just to be able to go about your business. But we know that's not really true. Um, and one of the things that I found is for me, I do a couple of things, which like, it might be a little extreme, but, um, anytime I try to get to know a topic, I will, I, I purposely embody one side. So. Like I did this even as a grad student, I'll be like, okay, behavioral, 
behaviorism. Okay, I'm a behaviorist. Okay, I'm going to read yeah. as if this is the God's honest truth. And then you you embody that. And then I'm like, okay, what's the what's the counter to this? And and own it enough that you can run it all the way down rather than see it as a strong, yeah. right? But on on with technology, I actually create like my own um, uh, counter personas, right? Where like, I'm like, I'm getting fed a bunch of stuff based on my past behavior online, which is just an echo chamber. And sometimes you can go into private mode or stuff like that, right? That mm -hmm. will give you less of that, but you're still getting curated stuff this way. <laughs> what I find fun is to actually get your alter ego and have it basically, I will just go and, and, and go to sites and things that, that are politically different than me. I think so that that behavior under that alter ego is getting fed a completely different. <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's pretty shocking, especially during like super political times to get like, wow, if I just log in as my alter ego, like the same exact phenomenon is just being interpreted completely different. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a whole, yeah. You could, you could do a whole nother book on just how social media creates these illusions because you know, the way these algorithms where he's like, I think I know you and what you like and what you want to see and just feed you this stuff because, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, think about it. Like, like <clears throat> two things beyond just the 10% on Twitter, creating a percent of the content, Facebook has super users, which have outsized effects in terms of what gets fed to all of us. And those folks aren't remotely representative either, right? And then the other thing I talked about in the book that I think more people should be aware of is the way that state-sponsored social bots are, do, are manipulating us this way too. So it drives me crazy with like, everyone thinks like Russia, oh, they interfered in the election by spreading lies on social media, kind of. But what they yeah. actually did and what China's doing on steroids right now is they, they have these bot farms, right? These social bots. And what they do is, unfortunately, like in, on social media, the overlap between, say, conservative Twitter and liberal Twitter is basically non-existent. It might just be you, right? Like, yeah. but, but the, um, and so what they do is they have these bots and they go in, hundreds of thousands of them, and they analyze sentiment. They pull out fringe ideas. So they're real ideas by real Americans and then retweet the hell out of them, like hundreds of thousands of times. And so now if I'm say, if I say I identify as a Democrat and I'm like, well, I didn't think this is what we believed, but I'm like, I don't want to be against my group. And meanwhile, they're doing the same thing with Republicans. And I'm like, those people are just crazy. Look how far right they're going. Right. So yeah. then it makes me have to cling closer to the group and they can basically force us to become polarized. And they're clever at it. I was talking to Megyn Kelly um, last week. And she told me uh, that when she interviewed Putin, his guys actually took her to the place and showed her how they do this, showed her how they could, with their bots, manipulate perceived consensus of the American public. Yeah. That's crazy. It's, it's nuts. Like, I've been a tech nerd my entire life. And sometimes I, I'm like, hey, we're freaking out a little bit too much about artificial intelligence and bots and everything. But it was maybe about a month ago, something like that, where... Like I have my girlfriend and a couple other people that are like, Chris, I think that's a bot, right? But like, like I think my final conclusion is it was, but like, if, if it was, which I'm almost positive it was, it had other accounts interacting with it to make it seem like people were agreeing with them. And, and it's weird too, because as a, as a human, it feels like your side is attacking you because you're not holding that belief and your brain starts to be like, okay, something's wrong here. Maybe I need to conform or, yeah, or whatever. Or I just say nothing. I won't fight. 
And that's the trick with these bots is they're not lone wolf bots, right? They actually swarm and yeah. that's by design. And it, what's crazy is researchers have shown pretty consistently that with, if it only takes 5% of accounts to be bots, if the bots are trained right, for those bots to completely determine group consensus on any issue. And so 5% is all it takes if it's done right. Now, other research has shown that on average, about 19% of all of our individual interactions online are with bots and we don't realize it. Yeah. So yeah, I just say this, I say, look, I'm with you with your first sentiment too, which is, I think with, we, we yell, the sky is falling. Every time a new technology is <laughs> introduced in society, we always think it's the end of the world. I, back in the, the first time in Germany, when they, when they um, unveiled passenger trains, it, it caused so bad a vertigo that public health officials were like, you need to ban it. Humans were not made to be on the train. <laughs> we realized this, no, just stop looking right out the window, right? Fixate out in the distance and this isn't a problem, right? Yeah. So you had to learn some new things. And I think the same thing is true here. Like social media has an incredible democratizing tendency, right? It gives voice to anybody with a smartphone or to access to the internet. That is great, right? That, mm -hmm. that has the ability to be great. But what we didn't realize is the unintended consequence about how it would weaponize the way our brains conform and misread groups, that mm -hmm. tendency, which just, we've never had this before. We've never dealt with this. And so it's not to, it's not to say the tech is bad. We should regulate it more. That's not the answer. The answer is to understand this concept of collective illusions, how it works and make sure we are doing things so that we are less susceptible to the, mm -hmm. the funhouse mirror effect of social media. And even when we are susceptible, we don't allow it to affect how we treat other people in real life. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like uh, what you were saying, I, I, I feel better because I, I try to do the same thing when I'm reading something, I'll, I'll take a hard stance. And, you know, I oftentimes when I'm reading a book, I'll take the contrarian view, right? I'm like, what would somebody who thinks you're completely wrong be saying, right? And I, I try to do that. And, and I'm a firm believer too with technology and all these things. It's like, like technology is not going anywhere. We're not going to go backwards. Like tomorrow, we're not going to be like, okay, social media. No, we're just going to keep advancing. So how do we understand our own minds and how we evolve so we can cope with these things and work with them and not just fall for these different traps and everything? And it's something I, I actively try to teach my son and everything like that too. Well, you know, think about that. Again, this has been true with every major technology that's been introduced to society, like big societal changing technologies. You think about the technology of the written word all the way back to like Socrates, who yeah. if you believe Plato, Socrates thought it was the worst thing ever, right? It would destroy memory, which if, if basically reciting Homer verbatim is losing memory, that's probably true. It, it's hurt us, but the trade-off seemed worth it if you could write everything down, right? And in, in concept, it was worth it, but then you realize it's actually only worth it if we acquired a very, very artificial skill, which was literacy, right? Mm. Because if I can't read, it's definitely not worth it. Oral tradition was available to everybody, right? And so what you saw was powerful people, right? The, the, the powerful and the clergy hoarded that skill until the Reformation, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like arguably an act of God to get people to like, like let other people learn how to read. And then you start to see the real upside of that technology. I see something similar here with our social media technologies is that for me, I believe the skill and the value we have to commit to is what I call in the book is just congruence. Like this mm -hmm. idea that you've got to work to ensure that your 
public self is as close to your private self as possible. Not only for your own sake, we know that congruence has a strong correlation with things like fulfillment and purpose and well-being, right? Mm -hmm. But now with collective illusions, you realize this act of congruence may be the most important civic obligation we have to one another. Yeah. So uh, with a little bit more of your time left, something I'm always thinking about too is like, like sometimes I get like really pessimistic about just everybody above the age of 18. I'm like, we're all screwed. And you know, my son, he just turned 13. I'm like, okay, how do I teach him? Uh, like one of the first things I taught him, like as he was getting older was just, you know, you, you discuss a ton of the conformity experiments, like ashes, conformity study, uh, the smoke coming in the room and people, you know, all these things. and those are like the first things I've tried to teach my son about. But anyways, I, you're, you're a parent as well. What are some ways that we can try to teach younger people about conformity? Because it seems like a lot of this happens around like, like my son just entered middle school, right? He just officially turned to a teenager a month and a half ago. And this is when we start to try to find our, our group, our group identity. I can relate to you with that whole social chameleon thing. And it, it wasn't fulfilling for me. And it took me a long time to realize like, oh, I'm just living really shallowly and all that kind of stuff. So how do we teach our kids about when to conform, when to kind yeah. of break away and think for yourself and all that stuff? Well, that's exactly right. To your point, it's like conformity is not always bad, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes the group is right and you are wrong. And yeah. it's like, so it's about still maintaining independent judgment without ruling out the social information, right? Because man, the contrarians are the most predictable people on the planet. Like, <laughs> right. like this is not better, right? Like, yeah. um, so, so for me, the thing I found the most interesting and, and we've done this both with our own kids. And also I, I ended up teaching, um, neuroscience to, uh, teenagers, um, through Brigham women's hospital here. This was, a, this was about a decade ago, but using neuroscience and people are fascinated by the brain showing them demystifying this fact that it's not some moral issue of whether you conform or not. It's just the way our brains are wired. They're on YouTube. If you just look at some of the, like the Solomon Ash, the classic conformity things, there's video, it's hilarious, right? One of the things that my, my kids loved is a similar one, the elevator uh, video where you just have someone get on and turn the other way and then everyone yeah. just kind of follows suit. So it's a little demystifying of it and, and then explaining it, I think is really powerful. If people don't understand how their brains work, then it, it's, they're way more susceptible to this, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that is super interesting from research that I cared about with my own kids is the extent to which you understand your own individuality, it actually leads to an inoculation effect on blind conformity. So the more self-knowledge I have and the more value I place on my own distinctiveness, the less likely it is I am just to, to blindly conform. That's the other thing. But the last thing I'll say is there is a way in which we use our own social nature in service of having people maintain their own independent judgment. So you think about the kind of norms that emerge, right? Like at our best in our country, we're supposed to be about tolerance, right? It's yeah. hard, but at least we, at least we believe that's what we're supposed to be about. And so if I wanted to be a good American, I, well, isn't that like, Hey, wait, then I should be open. I should protect people saying things that I don't agree with, right? Those kind of norms are really important and, and they make it so that someone doesn't have to choose between doing what they think the group wants and what they actually care about. Right. And so as a parent, like, look, first of all, when your kids are teenagers, you don't know, like, you're not going to be able to really do much against the, 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 the peers and the peers have a lot more influence yeah. than the family norms about what it means to be honest about who we are. 
is absolutely critical. Um, mm -hmm. But again, the combination of like knowing the phenomenon, knowing about your own individuality and valuing it and working wherever we can to ensure that the norms in our small groups, our families, all the way up to our schools, to our society writ large, actually reinforce this idea of being congruent as a person. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I can't uh, agree enough with that kind of uh, just demystification. I'll, I'll never forget when I first got sober, uh, early on, one of the books I read, it was from Dr. Judson Brewer. And uh, he talked about, he, he had this idea of like the brain mechanic, right? Because I struggle with like depression, anxiety, and all these other yeah. things. And he talked about how uh, it's like being a mechanic. I think it clicked for me because I used to work in car service back in the day. And when I, like, at first I knew nothing about cars, but when I understood cars, when a little light would pop up, I wasn't as anxious, right? right? So when I learned about my brain and my anxiety and my depression, where it was coming from, uh, the fact that I wasn't a bad person, maybe my amygdala is just overreacting or whatever it is, it helped me better cope with it. And now learning about the flaws in my judgment, the way, you know, we all make these thinking errors, it's helped me kind of deal with them, understanding conformity, and all that type of stuff. So do you think that like, just educate, <laughs> I guess education is like one of the best things that we can do to kind of break away from this stuff? It is, and one of the things, and it's, it's a place we fail spectacularly, right? Like, so we're so caught up on, about like fighting over like what parts of the curriculum, like, like listen, what, where we gotta get to is that we know so much more about our brains, about our minds, about the, the, the hitches, the biases and, and like simply understanding that. Cause to your point, like once you realize that we are susceptible to these biases, not because we're bad people or because we're stupid, but because yeah. these are the shortcuts our brains take purely to just conserve energy. Like even understanding that your brain is like an absolute energy hog and that like any chance it can get to take a shortcut, it will because otherwise it shouldn't even be around. It's that big of a hog, right? Yeah. So it, it is that demystifying and, and taking it out of this, this purely moral realm and being like, look, we have biases, they're built in, right? Okay, now you can either lean into those and let them determine your behavior, or you can put things in place that make sure that those biases don't dictate the choices that you make mm -hmm. fully. And I, like, there, there, are, there are plenty of folks who are trying to do that uh, in, in the curriculum now. But I think that's the thing that every kid deserves, right? To come out of an education system, knowing who they are, knowing how their mind and their brain works, right? Understanding what they're passionate about and learning how to convert that into a meaningful contribution. Yeah, yeah, it's something I, I, I think about a lot. And, you know, just as a parent, I've taken on the responsibility within the home, but I'm, I'm always just like, how come, you know, schools don't teach like media literacy, right? Because part of that would be understanding our own biases, look, turning into uh, media that agrees with us and confirms our beliefs and all that. It like that should be standard because it helps just open your mind, like, and turns you into a better adult because you know, like, a little bit about what your brain's doing and how we're turning in certain ways. And like you yeah. said, our brains are these energy hogs. Like when I'm when I'm like choosing what we're gonna have for dinner, I don't go through like all of the lists. Like, oh, am I just leaning towards this because of a bias or because of right. what? No, it's like right. no, that that doesn't take the time. But if I'm making the decision on whether or not to get vaccinated, maybe I'll do a little bit more time with it. Or if I'm gonna storm the cabin maybe right. I'll spend a little bit more time right. on that stuff, you know? Right. And, you know, it's funny, like, and I think this kind of self-understanding should be happening at a very early age. Cause you think about, think about, we teach little kids about morals 
and character early before they're even capable of making a bad choice about it because yeah. it, this is the time to build the habit and the understanding about what it means to be a good person so that when you are actually old enough and put into an environment where there's other temptations, right? You have these habits to fall back on. And I think that our technologies have placed us into a, into a world now where we're not going back and we, sh we shouldn't want to go back. Like it's so much better in so many ways, but we recognizing that our children deserve this understanding and what it means to be prepared for the world has to include this understanding. And to, to not have that leaves you susceptible to just being led around by your nose, like for most of your life. And what mm -hmm. we know from the research is there is no happiness at the end of that path. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so the, what we've got to get to, and we can, is a place where we are able to maintain our own judgment while still taking in the social information that is so valuable to us. Yeah, for sure. So, so Todd, ra to wrap this thing up, if there was just like one, one big thing, like whether it's your organization, your book, like what, what are you hoping like to accomplish? Like, what does that look like? Your big overall big goal, like where you're like, Hey, you know what? We can close up shop. We did our job. <laughs> like, what is that? What does that look like? Well, my long goal. Um, and this is actually the, the the topic of my next book, which I was so excited about is I, the reason I left Harvard and I started Populous, uh, co-founded it is like, I believe that it is fully possible to have what we would call a positive sum society, right? Where you just generate abundance. We know that in free markets, properly regulated, you get material abundance, right? Anyways, mm -hmm. but you can have psychological abundance too, right? Like your success can actually benefit me, right? But we mm -hmm. have structured our society as if somebody's got to lose, right? That yeah. it's zero sum. And that, that is so unfortunate. It doesn't have to be that way. And I think we know how to get out of that. That's why populace exists to create the cultural and institutional conditions. For me in the short term, and the reason I wrote this book is like to get to that sort of positive sum society, you've got to have really high levels of social trust, right? I need to allow you to make choices for yourself, even if they're not the choices I would make. I, and ideally invest in you because your contribution will be amplified, right? In a positive sum system. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is these collective illusions, the, the, the moral foundation of all moral foundation of all social trust is shared values. If I think you and I share values, I'm more likely to trust you. And if I don't trust you, then I'm going to try to control you. Right. Mm -hmm. It would be one thing if, if these plummeting levels of social trust in America were rooted in reality, that would still be a problem. We'd still have to address it. It's a tragedy when they're rooted in collective illusions. Yeah, right? no, ab absolutely. And so, and, and we know, and I talked about in the book, one of my favorite examples, I, I won't belabor the point here, but like collective illusions are powerful when they're enforced, but they're fragile because they're social lies. And if you can shatter them, it can unleash social progress in a way that just seems unimaginable right now. And in the book, I'll, I'll leave the teaser. I talk about one of my favorite examples, which is the Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel, overthrew communism without anybody dying. Mm -hmm. Never, no authoritarian regime has been overthrown that way. And you'll, you'll read in the book, I mean, what he figures out about the Czech people that allows that to be possible. You know, if a poet, which is what he was, can overthrow communism by dismantling collective illusions, just think what we can do. Yeah, for sure. I love it. So Todd, thanks so much for joining me. And the book, 
is out. So let everybody know uh, where can they find you, the work that you guys are doing. And yeah, I, I listened to the book, so it's available in audio format, but where's yeah. it available? Is it available globally yet? Or It's available everywhere. Like it's available on the Wall Street Journal bestseller, <laughs> which obviously means it must be a great book, right? If we've learned anything from these, <laughs> this conversation. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, you can go, you can follow me on like toddrose.com is my page and populous.org. You know, it's not too hard if you Google me. Cool. I love it. It's so all link all that down in the description. And when can we expect the next book? Like tomorrow or how long, how long until that word comes oh, out? I wish it was. I'm so eager to like, I'm so excited about this one. It like, I'll, I'll probably sell the, I work on the proposal now. I'll sell it uh, to a publisher probably in the summer, which means the way publishing works. It'll probably be a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, when that happens, we'll have you back on. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Todd about his book, Collective Illusions, and I hope you are understanding the importance of this topic and why we need to start seeing through these illusions and seeing the world as it is or not, you know, how we want it to be or how, how we assume it to be. There are facts and information, but, but the more we understand about human behavior, like, like I'll never forget, I've mentioned this in episodes before throughout different conversations. I will never forget that the dude himself, Daniel Kahneman, right? That there was, you know, the, the, the writer of thinking fast and slow, who like taught us all about biases and thinking errors and all these things. I'll never forget. Like this dude said, like even he cannot overcome all of his biases and everything like that. But but the most important thing is that we educate ourselves, right? Like you can't you can't even begin to work on a problem unless you know or admit that the problem is there. So that's why books like Todd are so 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 important. So yeah, make sure you head down in the description, make sure you're following Todd and grab a copy of his book, Collective Illusions. I loved it so, so much. All right, but before I let you go, just a few things. Uh, yeah, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. If you like this episode or any other episode, make sure you share it, blast it out there on social media. That helps out a ton. And do me a favor, head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating, leave a review. It really helps. All these things really help out with the algorithm. The algorithm's like, oh, people enjoy this. People are sharing it. People are leaving ratings and getting engagement. Then it helps get the word out to share these lovely episodes grow our beautiful community, all that good stuff. All right. But some other ways to help support the podcast, you can head over to the rewired soul.com. I've written a, a, a couple books. Uh, actually I've written five books <laughs> of mental health addiction recovery. I also wrote about my experience getting canceled and what that was like. Um, you can also uh, head down to the description below. There is an affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. This, you know, this was huge for me. I, I have personally used BetterHelp, but working with a therapist, it helps you challenge your own, right, your own illusions and challenge your, your false beliefs and all these other things. It helps you start thinking through these things, whether it's depression, anxiety, whether it's just dealing with life stuff, making decisions, right? Like I talk to my therapist a lot about just making the right decisions. You know what I mean? And that's crazy because I read so many books on decision-making, but probably because, uh, you know, it's something that I'm like fearful of making the wrong decisions, but I guess that's a conversation for me and my therapist. But anyways, if you're interested in that, BetterHelp, it's affordable, it's online, it's super convenient. Head down to the description below. Use that affiliate link. When you sign up, a little bit comes back and helps support the channel uh, or the podcast. I'm in YouTube mode right now. 
but yeah that that's all for this episode so another huge huge thanks to todd for taking the time he's uh, to come on the podcast he's a super busy guy and yeah thank you uh, all of you for tuning in and have an amazing rest of your day and i will see you next time